Hi, my name is Richard Pickering and I work at Cushman and Wakefield. Welcome to the 191st edition of Futures Cut, where I offer an opinion on the evolving role of real estate in a world of technological, social and business change. Today we're talking about reigniting offices, tackling the root of the problem. The advantages of working in an office compared with one's living room are manifest. Designed for the activity of work, good quality offices offered better lighting, better quality air, better digital connectivity and a range of other work amenities, printers, stationery, coffee, the list goes on. They also tend to be situated in places that offer wider benefits. The centres of our cities provide workers with better opportunities to connect with each other and a much broader range and quality of social amenities like restaurants and cultural attractions. And yet in spite of these significant benefits, the evidence suggests that given a choice, workers would choose to spend less than half of their working week in the office. In this week's blog, I ask why it is that workers are making this seemingly irrational choice. I offer a series of explanations and set out what corporates, investors and city governments should do if they want to change people's minds. Sitting in 2019, it might have been surprising to understand that many people wouldn't want to work in offices. However, that would have been based on lazy thinking. We should have seen this coming. Let's wind back a few decades to understand how easy it is to misconstrue the future if you adopt a superficial understanding of the trends that will shape it. An article in Time magazine from 1966 considered the potential impact of remote shopping. As for shopping, the housewife should be able to switch on the, to the local supermarket on the video phone, examine grapefruit and price them, all without stirring from her living room. But among the futurists, fortunately, are sceptics, and they are sure that remote shopping, whilst entirely feasible, will flop, because women like to get out of the house, like to handle merchandise, and like to be able to change their minds. Wow, where to start with this one? The context that over a quarter... Uh, $4.28 trillion uh, globally of shopping is now performed online, tells us that remote shopping did not, in fact, flop. What did these sceptical futurists get wrong? Well, their first mistake was underestimating the technology. Despite talk of video phones, they got that one right, in 1966, the only real context for remote shopping was mail-order catalogues. Littlewoods, JCPenney and Sears had all been in business for decades by the 1960s, but the process was still long and clunky. Delivery times were off-putting and the ability to change one's mind didn't benefit from current consumer protections. The big failure in vision, however, was that remote shopping would involve ringing up somebody in the store on a video phone, as opposed to using automatic internet forms and marketplaces. For many obvious reasons, the former just wouldn't work or offer a significant advantage for most shopping trips. And so the logical flow based on this assumption was naturally that it would flop. Their second mistake was ignoring social change. In particular, the thesis equated shopping with women and women with housewives. In 1966, this was not really an acceptable mistake. Female participation in the workforce had been steadily rising since the 1920s. In the late 1960s, about 50% of women were working and the trend line was sharply upwards. Working women didn't have all day to spend examining grapefruit. And although 80% of purchases are still today made by women, 
men account now for a much more significant percentage of mobile shopping uh, channels. <clears throat> a further social change that should have been visible by 1966 was the change in the nature of shopping. The big four UK supermarkets had started to consolidate in the 1960s, focusing on a self-service convenience model. The game, at least for groceries, had changed and was about convenience, price and efficient execution. Sure, some people liked uh, still to handle merchandise, but for many this would increasingly be traded off against saving time. And that was the nail in the coffin of time's future thesis. Back to almost the present day. In, two, in 2019, it may have been hard for many to conceive why workers would shun the office. The time write-up by a real estate futurist might have looked a bit like this. As for work, the modern businessman should be able to access his files from home, have a conference call with his colleagues over Skype, and carry out transactions from the comfort of his living room. But among the futurists, fortunately, are sceptics, and they are sure that remote working, whilst entirely feasible, will flop. Because businessmen like to get out of their house, spend their day in palatial offices, and are social animals who like to converse with colleagues. You can almost still hear this language used in the discussions over the past year. However, again, this would have been predicated on a number of failures of vision and mistaken assumptions, again, mainly to do with technology and social change. The first failure around technology is now clear. Audio-only interactions will always be inferior to audiovisual ones. The video call also has significant shortcomings. However, imagine what the last year would have been like if you had relied only on audio. The sudden and radical adoption of video conferencing was not widely expected in 2019. And so it would have felt logical for many that only experienced audio interactions, including most people in our industry, that remote working would flop. However, looking across other industries where this was already much more common, combined with the rapid growth of cloud computing, should have provided us with some clues. Secondly, consider how the following social and societal changes have impacted on the desire to come into an office. Firstly, excessive hours. In recent years, the number of hours worked by professionals, particularly in London, has been increasing steadily, and those reporting working excessive hours has increased by 15% over five years. The amount of corresponding free time has been decreasing, and for many, free time is becoming a more important factor than many other social desires. The second point is longer commutes. So pricing and amenity pressures have been pushing people further out of our CBDs. Combined with failing infrastructure and increased congestion, commute times have been getting longer and longer. The average time spent commuting in the UK each day is now about an hour, or 84 minutes in London. And this has increased consistently in every region of the UK over the last decade. This conspires to further reduce valuable free time. The third point is increased commuting costs. Not only, and perhaps also partly because commute times are getting longer, the cost of commuting as a percentage of income has also been increasing. In general, over the past decades, both rail fares and petrol have risen above the cost of inflation and the change in average earnings, increasing the relative cost of commuting. The fourth point is creaking infrastructure. 
So both the time and cost of commuting have been rising. And importantly, at the same time, the quality of commuting has decreased. I seem to recall believing in my youth that first class travel meant champagne and silver service. The painful reality is that on most commuter trains, it only gets you a seat and a table if you're lucky for double the cost of a standard fare. Meanwhile, in standard class, many commuter services are now at over 200% of their stated capacity, with a table being absolute luxury and not standing under someone's armpit for the journey being a good commute. Commuting has become an unpleasant experience and not an opportunity to be productive. The final point is about diversity of the workforce. I used the phrase business man provocatively in the statement above. Since the 1960s, the workforce has, of course, become much more gender balanced. With a shift to dual income households, wrapping childcare commitments around work for both women and men now makes working traditional hours at distance from one's home challenging. Over the same period, a better understanding of neurodiversity in the workforce hasn't been reflected in action or sentiment. 40% of workers are introverts. However, the social animals, which make up a high proportion of management, still speak as if their viewpoint is held by all. And the modern open plan workplace with ever higher densities largely reflects this. And so if you are looking for it, you could see a clear series of trends emerging pre-pandemic that made coming into the office five days per week much less appealing than it once was. Interestingly, not many of these actually relate to the office itself. Not everybody likes to be social. Many are in fact more productive when they are not. However, critically, even those that do are starting to trade off the value of social connections against the pain of commuting. A rejection of the office, or, or perhaps more specifically the commute, nevertheless puts workers on a collision course with many corporates who believe that productivity is higher in the office. And investors and city governments who have significant vested interests in the performance of cities based on the pre-existing work model. So what's to be done? Well, in this final section, I offer solutions that I believe will work for all. Firstly, for corporates, much will boil down to power imbalances in your labour market. However, if in contrast to your own corporate position, your employees have the option of shifting to an alternative firm or industry that doesn't require commuting, then you would be wise to respond. Recent surveys suggest that more than half of employees would sacrifice over 10% of their salary to secure flexible working arrangements. One option is to pay them 10% more. The better option is to change the workday. My advice to employers who want to see workers back in their offices is simple. Absorb their commute into the working day. By changing 9 to 5 to 10 to 4, you will retain loyalty and chances are they will still be as productive, whether by putting in as many hours, either when they get home or during their commute, or just upping their work rate. Beyond that, you will need to provide an inclusive workplace that works for all and not just those that shout most loudly. This includes private spaces and quiet environments, in addition to the more talked about breakout clusters and team pods. Secondly, for city governments, if you want people in your city centres, the solution is similarly simple. Make all public transport free at the point of consumption. Ludicrous? Not really. 
Over 100 cities around the world have already fully displaced public transport costs onto the taxpayer, including the entire country of Luxembourg, and others like Vienna are offering it for next to nothing. If governments fear the economic damage to cities arising from home working, then they need to put their money where their mouth is. P.S. Doing so will also encourage people out of cars, which has other benefits. To put this into context, would it be worth London funding the operating costs of TfL, about £6 billion pounds per annum, to defend London's £500 billion pounds GDP? In the face of the alternatives, I would argue yes, it would. But it can't stop there. We need massive investment in rolling stock and train capacity. The aspiration should be that every passenger on every commuting journey has a table and Wi-Fi access so that they can work productively during their commute. Other countries have delivered this. Why can't we? And finally, for investors, their role is quite simple and reflects my previous podcasts. Keep building high-quality, well-located schemes that minimise total commute time and serve up the broader immunity benefits of being in a city. These will distinctly outperform weaker propositions in the coming years, whilst adding value to the lives of workers. These solutions are simple, but importantly, they're targeted at the root of the problem. We need to stop talking about making reception areas nicer and offering nebulous and dubiously deliverable experiences and instead get down to the real issues. Principally, by ameliorating the detracting factors of commuting time and cost, the advantages that the home delivers over the office will for many workers be equalised out. When combined with the inherent advantages of well-designed offices, this will, I believe, be enough to encourage workers back into our cities. Okay, that's all for today. If you found this interesting, then why not check out our website, futures.cushmanwakefield.co.uk. I hope to see you again soon.